We are joined together today in sadness, shock, and grief. Last night, a gunman opened fire. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. Shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton, where two students opened fire on their classmates. As a country, we have been through this too many times. Whether it's an elementary school in Newton, or a shopping mall in Oregon, or a temple in Wisconsin, or a movie theater in Aurora. It was an act of pure evil. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, President Trump this week faced an event that statistically we knew he would face at some time as president, a mass shooting. Las Vegas on Sunday night was a place of tragedy. A lone gunman from a hotel window shot concert goers at a music festival. At least 59 dead, over 500 injured. The worst mass shooting in American history from a single shooter. The tragedy in Las Vegas is is enormous, hard for us to comprehend in our hearts and minds. Uh, A next step in so many incidents like this. And first and foremost, our thoughts are with the victims. President Trump has faced nothing like this yet as president. This is his first moment of a type of moment we've seen so often. But on top of this horror, he is still dealing with Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. 95% of that island, as of Wednesday, is still without power. Three million people. About half the island is without drinkable water, a setup of potential disaster. These dual tragedies in these last few days are signature challenge for Trump as president. And I want to take a step back today to think about this specific and particular thing of how handling crises is often a defining moment for president, how previous presidents have handled similar events, and how in so many ways now this is the one place in which a president seems, well, presidents have the chance to be the president of all the people in eras in which uh, that is less and less available as an opportunity, as something presidents are able to do in these divided uh, times. Heather, what have been your thoughts during this awful week? Well, I have one overwhelming thought, and that is that this is not okay You know, so much of what's happened in my lifetime has been incremental things. You know, first one shooting and then another and then another, and there's always a few more people. And, you know, we seem to be getting used to it. And I woke up to the news from Las Vegas and I went, no, no, there has to be a point when the frogs jump out of the boiling water. It is not okay when our streets look like a war zone. It's not okay when, when literally 
we are being shot down in the streets. This is not the price of freedom, as Bill O'Reilly said. This is wrong. This is not my America. And listen, I'm comfortable with guns. I grew up with guns. I've shot guns. I'm actually a proponent of hunting. But this is not that America. And the same thing is true of Puerto Rico. You know, that's us. That's us. That's that's our people who are dying without electricity because they can't power the hospitals and who don't have water to drink and who can't feed their children. And this is not my country that that looks like this. This is not the America that I love and the America that I want to contribute to building. So I sort of felt like for me this week was um, was kind of that wake-up moment where I went, okay, you know, I've been here fighting on all of these fronts for many, many years, but I sort of thought, no, no, the water's gotten too hot now, and we really have to jump out as frogs, or we're not going to be here any longer. You know, Trump's initial remarks in Las Vegas uh, were what we have come to expect from presidents. It was a moment where I think he looked most presidential, to be frank more than I have seen him or we have seen him yet. The mass murder that took place on Sunday night fills America's heart with grief. America is truly a nation in mourning. Uh, They were somber. They were caring. Maybe he felt a kind of familiarity, maybe even a personal wound. He has lived in places like Las Vegas. He has casinos there. He knows those streets. His words and behavior during... His Tuesday visit, however, to Puerto Rico, have received quite a bit of criticism. Let's listen to some of what uh, is firing uh, a good deal of anger. I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, and that's fine. We've saved a lot of lives. If you look at the... uh, Every death is a horror, but if you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina, and you look at the tremendous hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died, and you look at what happened here with really a storm that was just totally overpowering. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. And what is your what is your death count as of this moment? 17? 16 certified. 16 people certified. 16 people versus in the thousands. But who's counting? Uh, A great time to get to our guest this week, Doug Brinkley, professor of history at Rice University. His most recent book is Rightful Heritage, Franklin Roosevelt and the Land of America. He also wrote The Great Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, and the Mississippi Gulf Coast. He's a regular on CNN. Doug Brinkley, nice to have you here, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Doug, let's do a little compare and contrast here. Why was Katrina such a disaster for George uh, W. Bush in 2005? First, let's think of that and talk about it. And then let's think about what President Trump can learn from that. Uh, what George W. Bush did wrong is he was in Crawford, Texas, and um, there were anti-Iraq war protesters starting to gather at his compound there. And he wanted out, he wanted to get out of Crawford and fly to San Diego. So he really didn't do much to say or ask people in Louisiana about the levees, what would happen if they breached. He flew to San Diego, gave a political military speech, played air guitar while the storm was going on, acting like it wasn't that big a deal. 
He then, in fact, his head of Homeland Security, Michael Chernoff, continued to not even talk about Katrina and went to an avian flu convention in Atlanta. So he seemed very unattached and uninformed about Katrina. Then the administration of Bush was saying New Orleans isn't flooding, it isn't underwater, when CNN and other networks were showing water all over the city, it was flooding. And so it was just a disconnect. He then decided to rectify it by doing a flyover instead of going to the state of Louisiana or right. Mississippi, and he got roundly criticized. Famous, famous picture of him uh, looking out of that window at the disaster. How many days later does he actually get to New Orleans? He goes then. Uh, it takes him a long time. He won't go now. for a, He's missing weeks. It's a little bit like the time Trump went to Puerto Rico, but a little longer than that. And then he, when he landed, he went into Mississippi first because there were friendlier politicians mm. there. Um, them, all Republicans in Mississippi, but in Louisiana, you had Mary Landry, a Democrat, complaining about Bush, and Governor Blanco was complaining about him. So he decided to go Mississippi, a softer landing, and that's when he famously said, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. Brownie, of course, being Michael Brown of FEMA, who was abysmal during Katrina. They got an F, FEMA, for the way they handled that disaster. And so Bush had a very bad visit to Louisiana. And then he came back yet again and finally gave a kind of primetime speech. That, that's where he apologized a bit. Or he said, we, yeah. we, uh, it was not well coordinated. Well, let's just listen to that brief clip. And then, uh, and Heather's got some things she wants to ask you. So this is Bush after this long passage that Doug has so artfully rendered, where he kind of says, boy, uh, 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 we didn't do a heck of a job. Four years after the frightening experience of September the 11th, Americans have every right to expect a more effective response in a time of emergency. When the federal government fails to meet such an obligation, I, as president, am responsible for the problem and for the solution. Heather, you know, here is a moment where Bush is speaking as to the expectations that government will be here for moments like this. And, and I know that you are a student of how we arrive at that assumption. This expectation that the government is going to be there in times of an emergency actually comes from a moment that looks a great deal like Katrina. It was a storm on the Gulf Coast, and it was the hurricane that took out Galveston, Galveston Island in Texas on September 8th, 1900, and completely wipes it out. It's a terrible tragedy in American history. We lose at least 8,000, as probably as many as 12,000 people, people thought at the time. And it's horrific because when the storm hits, people don't know it's coming. They're in buildings that collapse. The carnage in the streets afterward is terrible. Uh, there's so many bodies, they can't actually bury them, so they drop them out at sea off barges, but then the tide brings them back in. It's really carnage and horrific. And when that happens, interestingly enough, uh, the night that the hurricane hits Galveston, which is September 8th, 1900, is the same night that William McKinley accepts the nomination for his re-election campaign. And when he does that and recognizes what's happening in Galveston, even though there are all, the, all the telegraph lines are down, nobody can get out to the island, he mobilizes the army and he gets people on the ground within two days and they bring food and they bring tents. But people recognize that the government really needs to be there for its people. And they money pours in from across the country. But when that happens and pours into the city of Galveston, 
The city of Galveston is still run in the old-fashioned sort of machine politician way, and they manage to lose the money and go bankrupt within a year. And when that happens, the city of Galveston pioneers a new kind of American government, and it's government by bipartisan non-political commission. So that the idea is that you're going to have cities and governments run by people who are essentially a bureaucracy and who are going to do what's right rather than what is better for their party. So we get from this moment the idea that you need to have government responses to acts of God, if you will, or to extraordinary circumstances, and they should be managed in nonpartisan ways for what's best for the majority of people. And that really still holds in American history from 1900 until fairly recently. I think what's important on the federal government part, I agree with everything that was just said, but how do we do it? We need a fund. We need some kind, if if we're going to make the leap that these last three hurricanes, Katrina perhaps, are climate events, can we have a fund to, to give to places like Puerto Rico or Florida, Texas, instead of just constantly doing kind of emergency funding for things? I'm very concerned about Puerto Rico right now. The death toll is going up. They're only 7% of the island has electricity. This many days after the hurricane hit, about half the country doesn't have drinking water. Um, you're going to get health crisis there, environmental problems. And so um, I think that we've got to come think about how we're going to deal with these crises instead of always operating once they're over out of a huge deficit. What on earth is going on right now with President Trump and his really seemingly lackluster response to what the rest of us are seeing in Puerto Rico? He seemed to respond much more quickly to Houston, Florida just weeks earlier. Why Puerto Rico? Definitely he did. Um, And it's because I think, first off, he got hurricane fatigue He had to deal with Texas, now Florida. But in Texas, he had Governor Abbott, a pro-Trump rubber stamp guy to kind of give him the photo op and make things look good. And in Florida, he had Governor Scott. Puerto Rico's Democratic. Um, I think it is not his base, does not like the idea of Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. I think there's a racial component to it. It's only really the media started beating up on him, just like with George W. Bush did, the White House finally seemed to be a little more um, responsive. Is this an instance where the deep partisan divides that have devoured so much of the operations of government are now cresting maybe more forcefully into this one area of crisis where more than any other place, it's been a last refuge of the bipartisan. Is that what we're seeing here? I think so. I think that we're seeing that they, with Puerto Rico, doesn't matter to Donald Trump. It's a political calculation mm. um, that, you know, there are no votes there for him. There's no money for him. His base is, doesn't really, it's seen as an otherness, a territory. It's sort of like Mexico in his mind in some way. He didn't see it as seminally part of the United States, hence uh, a kind of lackluster approach. His language was, I thought, demeaning. I mean, he went to Puerto Rico and threw out rolls of toilet paper. Oh, my word. So uh, I, paper towels, I, I, paper towels, I think. I think it was, it was paper, paper towels. towels yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. Does Trump and his administration have the capacity uh, to handle more blows like this coming up ahead? It's still early. I don't believe so because I don't think they're willing to have an honest conversation 
about what's going on on the water's edge due to climate change and how that is going to affect weather patterns and that you are going to have more and more freakish storms. And every scientist in the country will tell you about it, but he doesn't want to listen to them. So when you think about these as national security crises, Puerto Rico and Florida and Texas, uh, he refuses to hear that. He pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord for no sensible reason, because he doesn't even want to... It really was just a conversation, Paris, because Trump won't even allow the conversation to take place. And if you dare mention it at the time of a Harvey or an Irma, they will say this isn't the time to talk about climate. Let's compare and contrast Trump's response to Puerto Rico and Las Vegas. I mean, we've talked about Puerto Rico, but his response to Las Vegas seemed quite different, didn't it? It was, and he stayed scripted in Las Vegas, and I think he did fine there. It may have been that he wanted to be there a little more, uh, could end up Puerto Rico is it was a reach. It's a security difficulty to get there. Doug, do you think anything will happen with gun control after Las Vegas? Well, with with regards to guns in Las Vegas, I mean, I remember well, President Obama had a few historians. I was one of them that got to go visit with him and talk when he was president of the White House. And we once talking about guns, and he was doing everything after Sandy Hook to do gun control and stop the selling of assault weapons. And he really put his shoulder to the wheel, President Obama, and he couldn't come up with anything. Well, one of my colleague historians said to Obama, uh, well, Michael Bloomberg and, and is, is, you know, his gun control, and Obama cut him off short and said, Bloomberg, tell Bloomberg to go to Kentucky, and he'll find out how cultural guns are. And it stuck with me when Obama said that it's such a cultural issue in states, you know, um, in the in the South and in the West, you know, guns are part of the culture. Uh, if a President Obama did everything he could on this issue, I don't think Las Vegas is going to trigger a big new national debate on guns um, being sold, assault weapons, particularly when Republicans control the Senate, Congress, and the White House. But it is interesting that our first gun control law came under your FDR when the country had a debate very similar to the one we're having now about background checks and what the time were considered assault weapons, machine guns, and nobody seemed to be able to make much headway on it until FDR did in 1934. Well, that's true. Is that a question uh, but, of planning? Um, I think it's a question of planning and having a visionary president who's thinking about the country and, and changes Trump isn't that. In many ways, he's a backwards-looking person. I mean, let's make America great again. Him is from wanting to make it great like it was 40, 50 years ago when there were still Jim Crow laws in, in America. I mean, it's he's not somebody looking at the that's going to be able to take on, in my opinion, something like the uh, assault weapons ban because he constantly feeds that base and that 30% or 35, that's diehard Trump. Many of them are just deep Second Amendment, National Rifle Association believers, and he's not going to want to, um, I believe, wrangle with that crowd. And yet there is a connection here between FDR and the first gun law and Galveston and the idea that the government really does have a responsibility for long-term planning for what's good for its citizens. Because interestingly enough, of course, the person who takes over from McKinley a year after when Galveston goes under uh, financially and they have to come up with a new kind of bipartisan government with a vision for all citizens is Teddy Roosevelt, FDR's older relative. So maybe the idea of planning is actually ha about having a vision for American citizenry as opposed to something just for your own party. 
Oh, absolutely. You couldn't say anything more accurate than that. And, you know, what I, I don't want to get into the, the micro FDR things, but people like Carol Akey's, that interior secretary, I mean, they, all they did was plan national parks, build wildlife refuge, highways, dams. Uh, the whole new deal is, you know, building bridges and tunnels. And they looked at all of America and thought about how to plan it with infrastructure, Eisenhower did some of that with the interstate highway system and the St. Lawrence Seaway. Kennedy put all that effort into space, and then we got pulled into Vietnam and, and Middle East wars, and we haven't had that moment in, in decades in this country where we really start thinking what America in the 21st century can look like and how we can plan for a better tomorrow. We do things in an ad hoc and um, part, highly partisan way, and the uh, and lobby groups uh, seem to be running Washington. My dream is that sometime we could have a national discussion and dialogue of what the country can look like in in the future. But it, we, instead of just constantly having to, you know, send emergency squads to a hurricane or gun mass killing spots. Well, maybe this ideal of government's responsibility to its citizens at times of crisis or disaster, what it can do, maybe there there could be a notion of resurrection leading to something like the Brinkley Fund, we'll call it, uh, for crisis. Uh, hey, Doug, it's great having you in the show. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Wonderful conversation. Love thinking and connecting Galveston to all this. So thank you both. Yeah, take care. Be well. Heather, stand by. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. All right, we're back. I want to turn to a political response to the shooting in Las Vegas from Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer. Here he's responding to the, the tragic shooting. As much as we might hope to, we cannot banish evil from the earth. Congress can't do that. President can't do that. What Congress can do, what Congress must do, is pass laws that keep our citizens safe. And that starts with laws that help prevent guns, especially the most dangerous guns, from falling into the wrong hands. You know, let's talk a little about where we are with uh, guns. Uh, you know, I hear Chuck Schumer say something so similar to what Barack Obama said after the tragedy in 2013 in Sandy Hook, the slaughter of 20 children six and seven-year-olds, and six teachers. All of us need to stand up and protect its citizens. All of us need to demand governors and legislators and businesses do their part to make our communities safer. We need the wide majority of responsible gun owners who grieve with us every time this happens and feel like your views are not being properly represented to join with us to demand something better. You know, when we're talking about Gun control, we're talking about what is one of the signature failures of the Obama administration. Obama steps up that very first day and speaks to the nation at a press conference in the White House and says this must stop and speaks of human dignity and speaks of tragedy and, and cries. And it's interesting to think about that moment 
in this era for the Obama presidency, folks used to murmur, what would Lyndon do? Meaning, what would a tactician like Lyndon Johnson do to manage to get outcomes? And maybe in that first day, Obama, if he was thinking more like Lyndon Johnson, might have grabbed a Republican leader right in the wake of that terrible tragedy and said, you've got to stand with me at that podium today, the day of this disaster and this thing that has torn to shreds our notion of ourselves and the shared conscience. Uh, He didn't do that. And ultimately, when he says, if you are against gun control, you are against fundamental moral and human rights. In some ways, he set a line that ended up receiving partisan response. Right off the bat, Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, said, in fact, it's the opposite direction that he recommends, not gun control, not uh, ridding the country of high-powered military-style weapons being available to individuals. But in fact, every school should have more weaponry available. Every school should have an armed guard and or police officer there to protect the children. That's what will keep them safe. The only way, the only way to stop a monster from killing our kids is to be personally involved and invested in a plan of absolute protection. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Ultimately, nothing occurs. Obama pushes through a variety of executive orders, which he issues in January, uh, just a month after Sandy Hook. Uh, There is legislation that gets proffered a few months later in the spring of that year, but fails. It's defeated in the Senate. The basic points of legislation in terms of background checks, in terms of getting high-powered weapons out of the hands of individuals, and ultimately... We come out of Newtown and Sandy Hook saying nothing can be done. The divides are too deep. The power of the NRA too great to get an outcome here, even with 20 dead children there. I think after that, many people said, I just now have given up hope that anything can be done here when it comes to the NRA and their lock, and their utilization, almost their weaponization of what lobbying means in this era and what it can do to the process of self-governance. Heather, talk about the history of the NRA. I know you're, you're an aficionado, an expert on understanding this, and it's fascinating. Well, so what's interesting about this is I, I will tell you the history of NRA, the NRA, which is actually quite fascinating. But, but it's interesting that in 1934, when we got that first gun control law, which I mentioned when we were talking to Doug, um, the NRA actually supported that. The NRA was was in favor of that. They also supported the 1968, many parts of the 1968 gun control law. And but what, right after that, they started getting right political. Right after that, they changed. But, yeah. but, but, and that's important. And why they change and how they change is, is actually crucial. But it's, but it's actually sort of the history of the NRA is actually interesting. So I'm going to give you a little bit of it just because nobody seems to know it because everybody looks at the NRA for what they are now. I will say that when I was a kid, we actually had NRA taught gun safety classes in our public school. And they were not political. They and were about gun were you, safety. Where were you growing up? Maine. Maine. Um, where everybody hunted. Right, and right. and I taught my kids gun safety because you really 
seemed to me to be a smart thing to do, that if they ran into a handgun, I didn't want it to be in somebody's drawer in somebody's house. I didn't want it to be an object of something fun and interesting. I wanted them to understand exactly what one did around guns and how they behaved. Um, But the NRA actually starts, the National Rifle Association actually starts in 1871, and it starts in New York, and it starts in part because um, there's a problem during the Civil War because the marksmen for the, especially the Union Army, were so bad that they used tons of ammunition before they could actually hit targets. So some of the people who had been through the Civil War thought that it wouldn't be a bad idea to practice marksmanship. And that was the argument that they had. But as you read the sources, which I have, it's actually clear that they want American sportsmen to look more like British sportsmen. You know, shooting is a big thing in yeah, Britain, sure, and it's sure. an upper-class thing, right. and they want to do that. There, there we go. We're hunting the pheasant. Well, and it works. It works. In fact, uh, rifle shooting becomes a real sport in America. Huh. In, the, in the early 20th century, you have marksmanship teams, shooting teams in colleges. We have shooting in the Olympics. Americans go. We, as as part of our shooting team, you've got a have, president in Teddy Roosevelt who's out hunting, shooting. That's right. And actually, the president, the the president of the NRA in the early twentieth century, which is kind of a figurehead position, is often a senator. You know, and they're very proud of their marksmanship skills. It will show up in an obit that somebody is a great marksman. The same way it would show up nowadays that he's a great golfer. And it's just part of the culture. It's, you know, you read it, it's like hearing you're a good tennis player or something. It's part of the culture. And then in the 1920s, you get bootlegging and you get the rise of gangs, street gangs, and street gangs that tend to be run by people like Al Capone. And what happens is people start to say, wait a minute, you know, we believe in the Second Amendment and and it's part of our Constitution, (laughs) but we can't have these weapons of mass killing on the streets. We have to register people who own firearms, and we have to make sure that firearms don't get in the hands of people who are mentally ill, and we have to make absolute sure they don't get into the hands of criminals. And the NRA backs that idea because they're about sportsmanship and hunting. They're not about criminality. Right. They're against Al Capone, and they're for the British. And actually, there's in the the 20s... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so excited over here by the NRA and the fact I finally get to tell someone this history. I missed what was a great joke. I can feel your excitement, and I don't want to interrupt it. I mean, I, look, I love this, though. This is this is fascinating. This is an NRA that I think folks, God knows, would say, where are those people? Let's in, I can embrace that. Yes. Well, yes. But what it happens, changed. But they it changed. Changes. It changes in the wake of that 1968 um Gun control regulation on the in the wake of the '68 shootings. Why the horrible did they, Why did they change? Well, think of the '60s. You're, you've got the assassination yeah, of yeah. major, major figures, and not just people on the left, like yeah. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, Senator Robert Kennedy, but also George Wallace. I mean, it's the it's the assassination of George Wallace or the assassination attempt on George Wallace that really brings a lot of people who might not otherwise think it's such a great idea right. to have gun control to think it is. But in the wake of that, something interesting happens to the NRA, and that is that the NRA. Um, in the mid-70s splits, and it splits between those people who really want to continue to support hunting and sportsmanship and those who want to start to oppose what they call gun control. And in 1975, they start their first political action committee, and they start accepting in a really big way funding from 
ammunition manufacturers and arms manufacturers, and they become very fabulously wealthy. And in 1980, they, for the first time in their history, they endorse a president. That's Ronald Reagan. By not, by 2000, they're one of the three most powerful lobbies in Washington. And in 2008, they spend more than $40 million in that election. So then does it fall on the ledger of corruption to say that the NRA is so powerful, so much money going to folks in, in Congress, in the Senate, uh, in the House? Is there a way people can look at that specific issue as an issue of corruption of the political system rather than more fundamental issues of choice or politics. How can we not? We have over 500 of us are lying dead or wounded in Las Vegas. And before that, as you say, we've had people shot in movie theaters and on college campuses and and in a, in a grade school, how can we not take this fundamental issue of our right to life, which is, of course, in the Declaration of Independence, and say that that outweighs the right of the gun lobby to, to buy our senators? Let's step back here for a minute. I mean, in some ways, as you lay that out, and that's a fascinating history of the NRA, I can't help but think of Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Just hours after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, steps up on the back of a flatbed truck in Indianapolis, uh, speaking to a crowd which knows nothing of what has occurred in Memphis when King is slaughtered, the very night. Kennedy, there, after he announces uh, the death of King, and it just had happened, literally hours afterward, And the audience gasps. He says something extraordinary, quoting Aeschylus, who is, he says, his favorite poet, the Greek poet. Just a month or two before he himself falls. He says, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. Until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. May those words resonate in the human heart. Heather, thank you for a powerful discussion today. Thanks, Ron. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakout and carry on at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM.
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.